Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Where ag and life collide. Brought to you by Gowan. Neil Dahlstrom, archivist for John Deere. Yep, that's a real job. Brand new book. You've seen him on History Channel. We'll talk it all right now. And just like that, we are underway. Season two of Open Field Radio kicks off right now, and there's nothing we can do about it. Hello, America and around the world. Thank you for joining us, and thanks for making season one a smashing success. It was beyond our wildest expectations, and now we're looking forward. The guests we have lined up for season two are amazing, and it starts today. In this episode, we talk with Neil Dahlstrom. On LinkedIn, he's titled as the Branded Properties and Heritage Manager at John. John Deere. He's the archivist for John Deere. He's the guy that holds all the history, all the everything. I don't know if it's in a little box or what it is, but he's got his hands on all of it. He's also a historian. He's got a brand new book coming out. He's been on History Channel. We're going to talk about that. And just a cool guy. So get ready for all of this. We're going to get into the whole thing in just a little over 60 seconds. Open Field Radio. I don't know about you, but it seems like everywhere I turn right now, there's something about jobs and the abundance of jobs available out there. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. From the Gowan Global Studio deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. Open Field Radio Season 2 Episode 1 starts right now with our guest, John Deere archivist Neil Dahlstrom. I read a cool quote of yours online that said, archivists are not collectors. Well, I think there's a lot of misperceptions about what archivists do. Um, you know, one is that all archivists are historians, which is not true, um, but archivists are not collectors, meaning the, the reason that we build collections and manage collections is just for entirely different reasons. And an example from my world, I work in the John Deere archives, and our mission is not to collect one of everything. We're not trying to acquire one of every model year of a Model A tractor or, you know, one of, of every piece of a certain type of literature. We, so our, our perspective is a little different. We don't look at things in terms of financial value whatsoever. And, and actually, it's against the archival code of ethics through the Society of American Archivists that we even consider that. Now, obviously, there is financial value to certain materials, but it's, it's not a, a criteria for why we would or would not add something to the collection. I love that. I love that it's archivist and not archivist. Thank you for straightening me out. <laughs> it depends well, on what part of the country you're living in, like oh, most things. Okay, okay. Fair, fair enough. So what's the code? What's the archivist code? Talk to me about that. It's, I, I'm a member of the Society of American Archivists. And like most professions, there's, there's code of ethics. Um, and actually, one of, one of the parts of that say that I can't collect anything that competes with my own collection. And, oh, wow. and people are usually stunned by that because I don't have John Deere collections at home. That makes I know I get it. I totally get it. But there are people that have John Deere collections at home. I'm sure of that. There's people who have John Deere collections that are incredible. You know, and especially when you talk to people who are fourth or, or fifth generation John Deere employees or customers, and and these things that get handed down 
over the years or something that you've acquired. Maybe you're trying to track down your grandparents' tractor that they bought new in 1947. Those those have meaning beyond the meaning of the machine itself, and I think that's what's so powerful about it. Well, I think there are very few things in Americana that evoke the kind of imagery that anything John Deere does. I would agree, and it's you know it's always interesting when you when you talk about just a, a, a collector, regardless of what they collect, because it, it's very time based, it's very personal. Most people tend to collect things that they grew up with, you know. So it's always interesting to to, to see what the trends are, and there's there's ups and downs uh, with that. But I think that's one of the the fascinating uh, parts of that. And, and of course, some people love hats, some people love machines, some people love advertising, <laughs> yeah. you know, what we call ephemera. There's, there's just so many nuances to it. Before we get into all of the John Deere part of it that I just think is going to be totally cool, tell me about your path to where you are now. Where did it start and how did you wind up at John Deere? It's very strange, actually, how I ended up at John Deere. And, and I say that because I, I grew up probably five miles away from John Deere headquarters in Moline. I grew up in East Moline, which is the, the next town over. Okay. And and just as a kid, I grew up loving history. We're three hours away from Chicago, so we'd go to Chicago and visit the, the Field Museum and the Shedd Aquarium, and, and I just kind of grew a, a, a love for museums and for history. I studied history and classics in college, went on and decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer or a teacher, which were the two professions that were kind of served up for me. If Well, if you want to study history, you're either going into law or you're going to be a teacher. And I said, I don't want to do either of those things. So I started exploring museums. I got to volunteer at a, a couple local museums here in the Quad Cities. That sent me to graduate school to study historical administration, which was archives and museums and historical societies. So I, I wanted to be an archivist when I grew up, believe it or not. And, and so where, where the story becomes strange is after graduate school, I took a job in Alexandria, Virginia, right, right outside of Washington, D.C., in an archive and thought I'd spend the rest of my life out there. It was an archive documenting the history of the commercial space industry. So today we watch videos of Jeff Bezos and sure. we read about SpaceX and all these things. Right. Um, I was working in a in a startup archive that was trying to document the early history of the commercial space industry, which was so far removed from anything that at the time <laughs> I was interested in. Sure. No, I can only imagine. Sure. The commercial side of it, especially. Yeah. And, and a few years later, I had a, a friend of mine say, hey, John Deere is hiring an archivist. And I said, I didn't know John Deere had an archive. Um, but I do know that it would require me to move home and I don't really want to do that. Mm. Oh, sure, <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. Well, fast forward and <laughs> I applied for the job and, and found myself sitting, uh, in my desk chair in the John Deere archives, which was situated, uh, it sat less than a mile from the house I grew up in. Oh my god. So not, not, not only did I come home, but I came, I came home in a major way. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that is incredible, actually. And it was a good thing. Yeah, it was a great thing. Yeah. I, just, I, I remember sitting there. Uh, there was a field across the street from our office, which was, when I was a kid, those were the soccer fields. And, you know, those things you, you think back to as a kid. And I was like, I was here every Saturday for I don't know how many years. I didn't even notice this building with a giant John Deere sign was even here. Sure, sure. <laughs> right, right. No, you're busy playing soccer, for crying out loud. Wow, what a great story. You're listening to Open Field. Radio. 
We keep our boots muddy and our ears tuned to the thorny challenges of agriculture. That just sounds cool, doesn't it? Because it's the truth. The Gowan Group is a global, family-owned agriculture solution business headquartered in Yuma, Arizona. Gowan specializes in developing, marketing, and processing agricultural inputs such as crop protection products, seeds, and fertilizers. Gowan has grown markets in the majority of the agricultural regions globally. A deep respect for science and a passion for agriculture drives Gowan Company to help growers solve their critical pest and plant health issues. Let's say it together. Gowan Company. I want to hear from you. Yep. And not just an email, though emails are cool. And of course, this will involve an email too, but it'll be a cool email because here's what I need you to do. Grab your phone, find the voice app, you know, the little memo app in your phone that nobody uses for much of anything. We're going to use it. I want you to give me your name, where you're from, what you do, and that you listen to Open Field Radio. So it would go like this. I'm Mark, Yuma, Arizona, host of Open Field Radio, and I listen to Open Field Radio. Got it? Just Fill in the blanks with your information. Shoot it off to me in an email, info at openfieldradio.com. I just might use it on the air. And if I do, I'll send you something cool. How's that? Because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Quick shout out to some places we know are listening to Open Field Radio. Phoenix, Arizona, Rolla, Missouri, Wasilla, Alaska, Cynthiana, Kentucky, and check it out. Loams of Poland, Wellington, South Africa, and Rome, Italy. Thanks for listening. Open Field Radio. Like, share, subscribe. When the job became available at John Deere for an archivist, I'm with you. I didn't know they had archives, let alone hiring somebody for it. Was this a big deal? Was this a big position? Was this a great move? It it was a great move for me. And what I came to learn is that there's a lot of corporate archives. I'm I'm actually, I mentioned the Society of American Archivists. Mm -hmm. There's there's actually a, a, a section called the Business Archive section, which includes corporate archivists from across the country. So that's where we kind of get together and benchmark. We just had our annual meeting, actually. So, you know, hearing presentations from other corporate archives to kind of figure out what, what they're working on, what their pain points are. So it's just this this kind of niche of, of archives. But um, the, the John Deere Archives has been around since 1976. They've been working since that time on acquiring materials and, and cataloging records. Uh, we've got a an equipment collection which we have on exhibit in John Deere facilities at our tractor and engine museum that we've loaned out to to museums and in the past even even places like Disney and Bush Gardens. The collections are are pretty extensive. When it comes to archiving John Deere, what do you look for? Well, there's there's a pretty long list of criteria. Number one is it survived, um, which is pretty obvious. But you know, oftentimes I say, well. You've got to remember the archive started in 1976, which meant that John Deere was over 130 years old before there was an archive. We're fortunate that we actually had uh, something called the Agricultural Library that started in the very early 20th century. And um, that kind of became the foundation of, of the archives in the 1970s. So there was a lot of things like speeches, advertising. One of our prized collections are the handwritten journals of Robert Tate. Robert Tate was one of John Deere's first partners. And um, we've got about 40 years worth of journal entries. And Robert Tate tells us everything from when he planted strawberries in his garden to what day they raised the rafters on the plow shop in Moline in the summer of 1848 to when they went to church, when they had dinner with the deers, when it snowed, 
Um, so it really gives us a lot of insights into just what life was like at that period in time. So some of those things were fortunate um, that they've survived. And so those are those are some of those really precious materials that we have in our collections. I bet that's fabulous to read. Having the archives start in 1976, are you still filling holes? I'm sure there was tons of stuff to try and acquire or find or at least get a path to. Are you still filling in some of those holes from stuff that wasn't wasn't found before? Yeah, there's always holes. The the strange thing about it is is oftentimes if I've never been asked about it, I don't know it existed. Right. Right. You know, because you're we, we deal with volume and, and volume's a pretty tricky thing. There's there's this kind of idea of, well, we we need to keep everything just in case and my perspective is very different, which is no, that's not really true. And if you think about this in your house, do you keep every photo you've ever taken? Now, the answer today is probably yes, because it's just on your phone and you're <laughs> right. backing it up. Right. But I kind of challenge everyone that, yeah, that's great. But fast forward 10 years from now, and if you're looking for a photo, do you really want to have to sort through 5 million photos? Oh, can you imagine? Yeah, maybe use that delete button. Yeah, use that delete <laughs> button a little more. <laughs> that's a good perspective. Now, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, but let's be honest. It's a fine line between collecting and hoarding. But with that in mind, we could all be guilty from time to time of maybe hanging on to a little too much. So I did a little looking around, found this interesting article at junk360.com, and it kind of breaks it down. It says, collectors know the value of objects. It's not just about more objects, but you know what you got. And collectors are organized. Ah, dang it, I'm out. So whether you're a collector or hoarder, I don't know. But just be careful. How do you keep emotion out of it and your own interests out of it and find the necessary? It's an ongoing struggle because things <laughs> are bet emotional. I bet it is. I bet it is. You know, I mentioned the I mentioned the Tate journals. I get goosebumps every time I open it up. Oh, I'm because, sure. I mean, he sat there every day and 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 thought about what he was going to write and wrote it down. And that's a personal connection that you can't fabricate. No. Um, so that's, that's pretty incredible. And there is, there is kind of a method to the madness. So we've, we've got rules in place. Like our goal, for example, for advertising is to have two copies. Well, when you get sent 40 copies, hmm. it's really hard to dispose of the 38. <laughs> sure. Because in your, you know you can fast forward to the what if conversation, and I've had enough experiences where six weeks after I I disposed of something, I was asked for it. Uh. <laughs> and, and so oh, you, no. you have to kind of just train yourself that yeah, well, we have a methodology in place, uh, we we have a process, and that was a that was an anomaly. That's that's. Just because I can point to that once or twice in 20 years doesn't mean that that's going to happen again. And if I don't have it, I don't have it. Right. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. No, exactly. Time and history will tell us later, I guess, somehow. Is there a basic rubric for things that you are uh, looking to acquire somehow? Yeah, we're very much interested in materials that that represent the brand in, in a certain way. So, so either visually, through signage, through advertising... Um, we kind of break it down between uh, informational assets. So think about some sort of record that tells you why something happened, kind of mm-hmm. the, the who, what, when, where, why, or how. And that could be in the form of, of press releases or bulletins or memos, uh, even something like an advertising brochure or an operator's manual. So we, we look for those sorts of, of informational records. 
And then there's these kind of audiovisual assets. So just think about photographs, think about a, a film or a video. Uh, another big factor now is is just what's the long-term value of something versus the cost of, of keeping it. Of keeping it, because sure. Even it, yeah, even if it's just an advertising brochure sitting in a box, there's a cost to having that sitting on the shelf, to, to creating a, a catalog record, what most people call metadata today, so mm-hmm. that you can do a search mm-hmm. and you can find it. So there's a cost to all of that. So you have to weigh those things. This is Daniel Carmichael, Bear Flag Robotics, Newark, California. Season 1, Episode 12. Hey! And you're listening to Open Field Radio. Well, there's so many things when you think John Deere, I think, of course, your head immediately goes, obviously, to detractors and those things. But you had said, you know, hats and shirts and then signage and on and on and on. And what brings to mind, of course, TV shows like American Pickers, and they're always pulling out a sign for something that's got value to it. And what you have has probably astronomical value, and yet that doesn't play into it in the slightest. It doesn't play into it. And then, of course, there's, there's value associated with it if maybe somebody important owned it. So one of my favorite pieces in the collection is we actually have a two-piece wool bathing suit owned by Mr. John Deere. Okay. And it's the strangest item because it's a, it's a swimming suit. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but you got and, it. <laughs> But we've got it, and it was given to us by William Hewitt, who was the last Deer family member to be CEO. And what makes it really important, besides the fact that it was John Deere, is that we can can trace the provenance of the piece, Mm. which is William Hewitt handed someone in the archives a handwritten note that said, this is John Deere's suit. Before I owned it, it was owned by um, this person. And before they owned it, it was owned by this person, all the way back to John Deere. So... Without that note, the the way we always say it is, without that note, it's just kind of a creepy, weird (laughs) wool bathing suit. Right. But with that note, it's definitively John Deere's two-piece bathing suit. And we don't have a lot of of items that John Deere even touched. So it's a pretty big deal for us, even though it's a a bathing suit. Yeah, right. No, I get it. That's, wow. Unique and odd and and cool all at the same time. Yeah. And, And it is green. So I kind of like that too. <laughs> perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Wow. Now, a little behind the scenes on this whole thing. When we put Open Field Radio together and we connect with a guest, it's not like we send out a list of questions that we're going to ask and they can prepare answers. It's really more a conversation. And with that comes randomness that you can't plan for. That's kind of the fun of the whole thing. This next question, listen to the gap between my question and Neil's answer. Normally, I would edit this out and we'd make it all tidy and nice. But the thought process that goes into this is so cool. Check it out. From an archivist perspective, what makes John Deere so Americana? It's a it's a great question. It's it's something that evolved over time. I, I think there's a there's a lot of, of pieces to that. Um, one is is very much about relationships, and and I go back to a, a lawsuit in the 1870s. So I'm an archivist, and I'm always looking for information. And and one thing I, I like in the early or er, in the 19th century is there were a few lawsuits which means that there were depositions, which means that they were records. <laughs> and, and in this case, there was a lawsuit in the, in the 1870s, 
And there were, I think, about 32 or 33 depositions. And, and, and these folks who were hardware dealers or they were customers were asked things like, well, why were you buying plows from John Deere? And several of them said, well, I was buying from John Deere because of the quality of his product, because he would come visit my farm. We would talk about improvements. He would go away and come back with something brand new. Um, and it worked better. And so you start to kind of see these, these, these signs or what I call traits that continue to evolve within the company. And so I think you take those sorts of relationships that span generations, you start to see product innovation, which is, I mean, the, the company was started with a steel plow, which was insane in 1837 that anyone would think of that. So you kind of see these traits evolve over time. And then you throw in the mix of farm life in general. You throw in the, the visuals of the green and yellow tractors and combines and planters and things. I just think there's this, this whole kind of mix uh, that, that you throw together and, and you start to affiliate John Deere with, with Americana. Well, I think second only to the flag, it's John Deere. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a statement that just says America and everybody knows it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's something to be said about about longevity, about being in it for the for the long haul as well. And there's not a lot of things that you can point to to say, okay, well, yeah, you've you've been here since 1837. You've been here for 184 years. It's a pretty incredible thing to to say when you say, oh, when John Deere started, Chicago didn't even have a thousand residents. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, gold hadn't been discovered in California yet. Yeah. That was, that was still 11 years away. Um, yeah. There's no transcontinental railroad. There's no, you know, the automobile is 70 years away. almost. Civil War hadn't happened. Early, or, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you start kind of going back in time and going, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Abraham Lincoln was, you know, a teenager. Exactly. Wow. That's crazy. For you personally, is there a favorite artifact of some kind? You mentioned the the bathing suit from earlier, which is a unique piece. Is there something for you that you go, man, this is just absolutely amazing? Yeah, there's a lot of them. And and often it's it's based on whatever I'm working on right now. Sure. From from a, re- a research perspective. And um but but I will say uh, from a, a very I mean the opening month that I was I was working in the, in the Deer archives and I I was reading a couple letters that were written about John Deere by his nephew, George, who was living in California. And what I loved about the letters, uh, there were two of them, is George was writing to his cousin, Charles, which was, was John Deere's son. And they both said strictly confidential at the top of the letters. And then they went on to talk about all the terrible things John Deere was doing in California, <laughs> um, which turned out to be nothing. He was 80 years old. <laughs> Okay. Um, so he couldn't have gotten into yeah, too much trouble. Not, not much. Uh, um, but the the letter said strictly confidential. The first one said, "Please burn this letter and pretend like we're having a <laughs> private conversation." And the second one said something very similar. And and those are the things that you look at and say, like, how did this survive? Like, how how is it possible that a hundred years later I'm holding this letter? 
<laughs> wow. Um, so those are some of the things that, that really excite me. And again, it goes back to, okay, this is George writing to his cousin Charles. And, and, and basically that story was because George was trying to hit Uncle John up for some money. And John told him no. <laughs> so he's bad. He's bad. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's bent a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was, it was a lot of drama for, for no reason. But so I, I tend to go back to, to those sorts of, of, of letters. We've got a, an incredible ledger book. It's basically a guest register. Deer participated in the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. And so they had an exhibit and they had this big ledger book sitting there. So if you came to see the exhibit, you'd sign the guest register. And I was just kind of working my way through it. And you would see people you would expect from, from competitors and from Deer. But one of the signatures is, is from Milton Hershey. Oh, wow. Uh, so Milton Hershey went to the Deer booth, and it was at the World's Fair that Milton Hershey bought his first machine for making chocolate. So you, you kind of see these intersections of history as well, which I think are always fun to, to find. And I just like, like trying to discover these things. And, and the challenges, these are things you can't look for. No, you couldn't um, search you, that if you, you tried. Right, exactly. And and I just always, that's that's really the, the privilege that I have working in the collection is that I get to see these things and run across these things. Because I, I couldn't find it if I looked for it. If you said, Neil, who, uh, who came to the deer booth? Well, I can run down a list of names and you could look at the register, but you couldn't say, sure. hey, did Milton Hershey go there? And so, <laughs> what, you want me to spend six hours reading these names to see if Milton Hershey visited your insane. Sure. Well, it's like connecting the dots of history. It's really cool. Coast to coast and around the world. You're listening to Open Field Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, right? Gowan USA has a broad selection of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides to deliver customized solutions for your crops. Gowan provides the right programs to fit your unique needs, standing behind our products with expert service and support. And Gowan USA is family-owned and operated right here in the United States of America for over 55 years. That's a long time. Check it out for yourself at GowanCo.com. And now you know. I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you, you know me. Oh, look, we're just regular people, right? I mow my yard, you mow your yard. Regular stuff. And when it comes to promoting open field radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody, knock on somebody's door, call them up, send them a text, whatever, and tell them you're listening to open field radio, and by golly, they should be too. It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with author and John Deere archivist, Neil Dahlstrom. I was talking to the guys here in my office, and I said, hey, this is what the new episode is going to be. Anybody got a question? And the first question that came up, it said, ask, where did the green and yellow come from? It's it's a great question. Um, green and yellow... Uh, was was in use at least as early as 1905 on John Deere products. The answer is green and yellow was in evolution. We uh, we we can't go back to specific documentation to say this is why it was chosen. We just know when it started to appear and how it started to appear. I've heard a lot of really amazing stories that it represents the harvest. I just can't document it. And I'm an archivist, so I like to have a piece of paper behind me. Sure, you bet. Uh, but yeah, but we, we, we do know it was being used at least as early as 1905. Products that it was being used on in 1905 have been in production for more than a decade. 
Um, Robert Tate's journals actually have a, a recipe for green paint um, in the 1850s, if I recall, but they decided not to use it because it um, wasn't durable enough compared to varnish on the on the beams on the plows. What color were they before 1905? There were a variety of colors, and it really had more to do with with material that was you know, so of course a would be walking plow. You're you're not painting for the most part. You may be like adding stencils or something. There was the use of red for a long time on like maybe a tongue, but green and yellow was being used on on implements, as far as we can tell. And why why I say as early as 1905 is you have to have visual documentation of these things. So you're talking pre-color photography. You don't exactly have a a, a copy machine. It's one of the, the great. Uh, conversations I've ever had in my career was was someone years ago called and said, well, do you have a color photo of John Deere? And I said, well, no. John Deere died in 1886. Color photography hadn't been invented yet. And he said, well, can't you just put it on a color copier? Sure. Yes. I knew that's where this was going. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I just, as one of those, I just kind of thought about, I just thought, well, what am I missing here? Because I got to be missing something. It turns out I wasn't missing anything. Not a thing. Not a thing. <laughs> well, in your role, do you come across, uh, and I'm sure you do, collectors and folks, enthusiasts that say, hey, I've got one of, and they just got to make sure you see it? All the time. And it's, it's great. It's, um, cause like I said, unless I've, I've been asked about it, I don't have a reason to look for it. Right. And, and um, there's just so much out in the world that you just, you can't see it all. And so whenever someone can come up to me and say, Hey, have you seen this? Um, or can you tell me how many were made? And oftentimes we can't just because of the way records were kept. Um, you know, there, you think of all the prototypes and experimental machines that are out there or limited production or things like bicycles that we made in the 1890s mm-hmm. that there's only four or five out in the world that I'm aware of. Wow. Um, so you always see these things that, yep. that, you know, these barn finds and, and these things that pop up, which are, I mean, they all have their own story to tell. So it's, it's really incredible. Well, and because you're an archivist and not a collector, I was like, wonder what the most coveted piece of John Deere, anything out there is that people are looking for. Any clue? I don't right now. You know, I, I know in terms of, of tractor collecting and, and that's kind of its own thing. There tend to be, I know high crops were really hot years ago and I don't think they are anymore. We, we kind of saw this trend go from from Waterloo boys to A's and B's to then very rare machines. And now it's somewhat trending more towards D's and A's and B's for one reason, because there's, there's new people entering the hobby. And if you can buy something for $1,000 or $2,000, you can get your foot in the door. You can't go to auction and spend $120,000 on a rare piece of machinery. Mm-hmm which would freak me out anyway. (laughs) Hi, my name is Nina Wilson, and I listen to Open Fields from the Lotus Capital of the World, Yuma, Arizona. Toys, John Deere toys are very popular right now. I see it online all the time. Well, John Deere toys have been popular for a long time. Yeah, I was just doing some research. We've we've got a a Vindex John Deere Model D tractor in our collection, which came out um, circa 1929, 1930. So it was right at the beginning of the of the Great Depression. And and just doing some some research into that, it basically came about there was a company outside of Chicago that I don't remember what what they made, but sales were 
dropping pretty dramatically. And so they had this idea to, to collaborate to create these toys. And the way it worked was if you were a young boy, the toy was an incentive to selling magazine subscriptions. So if you sold so many magazine subscriptions at a dollar a year for a subscription, depending on how many sold, you could get a toy tractor, you could get a toy combine or a toy maneuver spreader. There was this whole line of John Deere toys that you could you could acquire in 1929. So so some pretty pretty clever marketing. Oh yeah, absolutely. You get the kids to do the work for you, right? Right. Right. And that was a case of I've known this has been in the collection for 20 years, but I never had a reason to research it and actually learn anything about it. Yeah. Fascinating. Speaking of fascinating, you've got a new book coming out in January or is it out now? It's um, it'll be out in January. It's, it's available for pre-sale right now. It's it's called Tractor Wars. John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester and the birth of modern agriculture. Talk to me about the inception of this idea. Where'd this come from? This came about really in about 2016 or 2017. We were preparing to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the John Deere tractor in 2018. And and that starts by identifying stories, trying to, to uncover photos and, and film and, and put together all this information so we could have this celebration. And as I got deeper into it, I, I, I always laugh because there was always this perception, well, Neil works in the John Deere archive, so he knows everything there is about John <laughs> sure, Deere tractors. Right. And I would say, well, it took me about 15 years before I was ever actually asked about a John Deere tractor and ever needed to look into it because there's so many people that know so many things about John Deere tractors. Mm-hmm. But I started, I started working into it. I just kind of got sucked into to the machines, but then I got sucked into the people behind the machines. Um, and that kind of led to this, this discovery of a meeting between Theo Brown, who was a, a deer engineer, uh, very involved in, uh, he, he developed the first John Deere manure spreader, was in, ran the experimental department, but he and a colleague went to visit Henry Ford. So, you know, we're talking uh, early 1920s, the Fordson tractor came out. Uh, at least domestically in 1918, the year that John Deere uh, went into the tractor business after six years of internal research and development. And I got sucked into the story of Theo Brown going to visit Henry Ford as competitors, and it turned out that Henry Ford wanted Deere to build a plow for the Fordson tractor, which I found very curious since John Deere was selling its own tractor. Now, I would not be doing my job if I did not direct you at this point to Open Field Radio Season 1, Episode 16 with Jim Travers from Car and Driver Magazine. In that episode, The History of the Pickup Truck, he specifically refers to this situation, maybe not by the term of tractor wars, but the idea that everybody, including Henry Ford, was in competition with each other as motorized vehicles, including tractors, began to be a part of everyday life. Check it out for yourself. Now, let's get back to Neil. I got tired of giving a really flippant answer to a question (laughs) I've, I've gotten for years, which was, why was John Deere late getting into the tractor business? And I started saying to people, and I apologize to anyone who I ever said this to, I I would say to them, well, John Deere was after those who were before them, but they were before those who came after them, (laughs) which was my way of saying, I have no idea. I got nothing. The answer with that question. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I thought, well, it's time. I'm going to answer that question. Well, 
it, it took me about 260 pages and five years of research. That is fantastic. But it, yeah, so I, I hope the book answers that question. And it's very much the origin story of of the farm tractor and its evolution from, you know, the steam engine to these large prairie tractors to the small gasoline and, and kerosene tractors. And then, of course, it includes World War One and the Ag Depression of the early 20s. And um, the the title uh, actually comes from Cyrus McCormick Jr. from International Harvester, and and he later talks about the the tractor wars, which was this period where the industry went from a few thousand machines in in 1912, which was the year that John Deere decided they were going to start development of a tractor, to 10 years later where there were you know almost 200,000 tractors built <laughs> annually by 150 competitors. Oh my god. And Henry Ford had 75% market share and everyone else was kind of fighting for the scraps. Whoa. But but the 1920s ushered in um, price wars between manufacturers. Henry Ford started dropping the price of the Fordson, he was dropping the price of his Model T and competitors had to figure out if they were going to do the same to to stay in business. So then you start seeing all these entrepreneurs and and and, and upstarts and, and and companies come and disappear and go bankrupt and merge and reform. And so it was very much a, a story of survival and technology adoption. They were competing against the horse. They were trying to convince young people to stop moving to the city and stay on the farm. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that was by talking about all the cool technology that you can have on the farm like a gasoline-powered tractor. Hey. So if you are interested, and I know you are, Tractor Wars by Neil Dahlstrom, you can find it at Amazon. I searched it super fast right now, and there it was. You can pre-order it right now. There's a Kindle version. There's a hardback version. Comes out in January. Oh, how happy you'll be in January when it arrives. It'll be so much fun. I'll put a link on the Open Field Radio website. You'll find it real easy. Enjoy the read. John Deere, like, like any great... American brand, but John Deere, man, what a following. The folks that love John Deere are loyal to the bone. Absolutely. It's such an incredible story. And I think I've already said this, but I just feel so fortunate to be on the end of of listening to these stories and collecting these stories, whether it's from, you know, employees in Moline or employees in Brazil or Germany, these multi-generational customers or if you're someone who just bought your first John Deere lawn and garden tractor, and that's your introduction to the John Deere brand. You know, we spend a lot of time telling stories from the John Deere perspective. You know, we, we designed this, we built this, here's, here's why it was impactful. But the reality is, as soon as you take that home, it becomes something new. It's, I mean, people name their, their tractors like they used to name their horses. It's true. It becomes That's part right. of your, it becomes, yeah, part of your family. It's handed down. Um, you, you kind of build that within your own family, whether it's through a toy or, or the real thing. And uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible, and that's all about the impact that it has on on people's lives, and that's what it's all about. As if you're not busy enough, you you're the archivist for John Deere. You've got the book. Talk to me about the show on History Channel. Yeah, the machines that made America. Um, it was just really a, an incredible experience. I got to go to Chicago uh, in November of last year. Of course, that was in the middle of a very high COVID protocols. Um, so it was it was the experience of of interviewing for the machines that made America, and I know they were doing a, a segment on on kind of the origins of the farm tractor, which was dumb luck timing wise that 
they called and said, yeah, we're doing this program. And I said, well, I kind of just spent the last five years researching this exact topic. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, it's allowed me to, to tell my 11-year-old son, hey, it's not about trying to figure out what you get out of it. It's about following your passion and, and doing things that interest you. So it really gave me a good talking point. But yeah, I got to, I got to go up there and I spent about a half day interviewing and, and it was a, a strange scenario because the film crew was there. I was sitting in my chair staring at three computer monitors because they were in New York because they couldn't travel due to COVID. So I was having this conversation with people on these monitors. So, so then you, you kind of do your interview and you do some follow-ups. And then you wait, and um, I was I was really really looking forward to to the debut um, in the middle of, of July to kind of introduce you know just a, a piece of American history that I think a lot of people now don't think about. I, I live in Illinois. I see it every day. Uh, I I see I see beans and corn on a daily basis, but I got to remind myself that most people don't see that. Is there something about John Deere that most everybody doesn't know? Boy, that's a great question. I don't think I have a good answer for that. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I think I think one of the, the fascinating parts about John Deere is most, I wouldn't say most, so many people still say, well, John Deere, you know, green and yellow tractors or combines. Uh, Virkin is, is a John Deere brand. It's, it's the largest road building equipment company in, in the world. Uh, we've been building lawn and garden tractors since 1963. Uh, we built our first piece of, of industrial equipment or what we call construction equipment today um, in 1935. And so we have this long track record of, of machines and machine forms. And one of the things that I'm really proud of being a 20-year John Deere employee is is things like our our goals of, of a million hours of employee volunteer hours every year. And so thinking about giving back to our communities and I think about you know, helping with my son's baseball team. Um, those are all things that John Deere as a company encourages us to do because there are 70,000 John Deere employees around the world. So that means we have 70,000 people who have John Deere at their back to support all these causes and initiatives. And, and there's, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with working for John Deere. And uh, it's a privilege to have that responsibility and we don't take it lightly. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.